On November 18th, 1986, Hella Crafts was on the way home after a flight to Germany. With her friends in the car, she talked about the two turkeys she ordered for Thanksgiving and her special recipes. When they got to Hella's home in Newtown, she said, Richard's home, very matter-of-factly. She got out of the car, carried her bags up the driveway, and her friend drove away. Hella Crafts was never seen again. This week, we have a grave retelling of the infamous murder of Hella Crafts. I am Marina. With me, I have my two best friends, Colby and Laura, and this is Grim. guys we're back um first we're just gonna start off again saying we love all of you guys so much our gremlins are the best and i love Love. that people are calling themselves gremlins um and i just uh love that people want to listen to us talk oh i just wanted to start off with uh actually pretty big true crime news i think it's national because it got a catchy title so people are interested in it but it's definitely big news in connecticut uh the fitbit murderer richard debate got convicted by the jury on all counts for murdering his wife connie debate so that's super interesting um jury just came back uh they just increased his bond from one million to five million so Mm, he's going to be going to prison i'm sure he's going to appeal everything um but those are going to go on for years and years and years we are going to cover that case because it's really interesting but um yeah awesome because i'm looking for i don't know that much about it for it happening in connecticut actually yeah Yeah, same yeah it's called the fitbit murder because they are using um like the gps data from her fitbit to poke holes in his story of what happened and show that he was lying and that he was the one that murdered his wife husbands everywhere are going to stop buying their wives fitbits totally unrelated to (laughs) the ruling in this case but no (laughs) fitbit sales plummet well it's just really hard with technology nowadays i mean like think about murdering someone in like the 1920s where there was no dna evidence or blood evidence or anything like that or cameras versus nowadays i mean we're going to cover um the photos doulos jennifer mm-hmm. doulos disappearance too but i mean like he was caught all over hartford on people's ring cameras yep. i mean like you can't go anywhere nowadays without a camera catching you unless you're in like i don't know rural wisconsin or something but <laughs> like plainfield would be you know a good place to do it i'm bringing it back yeah i'm looping it back in i Listen like it episode three yeah it's so good so many nipple belts <laughs> You just couldn't, you didn't say nipple enough in the I know, I just said really one more nipple. Guys, um, if you want to stay abreast of all of our uh, upcoming shows, you should follow us on Instagram. Yes. <laughs> yes. So this one's off the rails already. All right, here we go. So this week we are talking about the murder of Hella Crafts. Uh, this is a pretty infamous case, but I don't want to give away too much in the beginning for those listeners who don't know this story. Um, What I will say is this was the first case in Connecticut state history that a murder trial proceeded without a body. Mm. So I'll give you that. So here we go. Hella Lork Nielsen was born in Copenhagen, Denmark in 1947 on the 4th of July, Hmm. which little firecracker didn't mean much there, though. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Because Denmark. Because it's Denmark. Oh, yeah. America. America. 
So also, I'm ashamed at how like that didn't even process. In <laughs> that'll my be brain. one of those. That'll be one of those long silences that Mike cuts for mm-hmm. us. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so uh, Helen Nielsen was extremely intelligent. She loved to learn. She was fluent in English, French, and Danish, and had a working knowledge of German, Norwegian, and Swedish, which is really impressive because I can barely speak English. And I've tried to learn other languages, and it's not going well, is yeah. what no. I'll say. So yeah. I find it very impressive when and people those are can hard speak. Ones. Those are hard languages. Is there any overlap? You know, like is, you know, like Portuguese and Spanish has an overlap. Is there any overlap among those languages? I don't know. I already forgot what languages. <laughs> there were six. That's too many languages for any one person. Probably not between like French. Actually, I don't know. I don't know. They seem German. German scares me. That seems like a very difficult language. To it's master. like a love language, but they people sound really angry when they say it. Sometimes I'm not. Even, I was gonna like pretend speak German, and I was like, no, I decided offend, against it. You'll offend. Do host me. <laughs> that was something. That's what that was. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Okay, so uh, she attended college in England. Uh, she. <laughs> All right. All right. Get it together. Fuck. Murder. She attended college in England. She lived in France and worked as an au pair after college. Um, But she wanted to travel the world. So at the age of 20, she started her career with Capital Airways as a flight attendant in France. Uh, She ended up working for Pan Am, which is what brought her to Miami, Florida for training, which is where she met Richard Crafts. So Richard Crafts was born in New York City in December 1937. His father was a former World War I pilot. He grew up in Connecticut and graduated from Darien High School. Uh, He actually dropped out of college to join the Marines in 1956, where he learned to fly like his dad. And while he was a Marine in 1960, he flew for Air America, which was a uh, charter company that was a subsidiary of an arm of the CIA. And he participated in the secret war in Laos and Vietnam that was temporarily halted in 1961 because of the Geneva Accords. Uh, And then he rejoined in May 1962 until 1966. That sounds like a very tangential fact, but Mm. it may prove relevant later on. I suppose you would be the authority on that. So, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay. I'll loop it back. I'll loop it back. So he returned to the States in 1966, and he got a job as an airline pilot working for Eastern Airlines, and he also ended up in Miami for training. So Richard and Hella met on May 24th, 1969, when they were training. They met each other at a bar near Miami Airport called Lenny's Hideaway, which sounds like a tropical bar that I would like to go drink at. Yep. Mm-hmm. I just picture um, like straw and thatch on exactly. the walls. Yep. With like, I, I pretty much picture this guy right here. This yeah, guy he has a star sunnies and a nice drink. <laughs> For <laughs> sure. Yep. There's definitely umbrellas on the drinks at Lenny's yes. Hideaway, if I had to guess. <laughs> so, uh, Hella was immediately attracted to Richard for whatever reason. Her friends were confused by the attraction, but. Apparently, he was good-looking, if not disheveled, but he had a romantic-sounding past. Same, man. (laughs) So he's like a little bit of mystery with the disheveled, like not completely put together, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think he had like a handsome face, but like sort of crazy hair. I can fix him. I'm thinking like Mm. um, Manson. Oh. A little bit. Okay. I haven't haven't looked at what he looks like. Manson doesn't have a handsome face, but he has crazy hair. Anyways, I digress. (laughs) So when they met... Uh, Richard was engaged to another woman 
but they still dated each other on and off. Ooh. So that sort of sets the tone for their relationship um, mm-hmm. and how they are as people. Maybe not Hella, but uh, Richard really just continued on with that throughout his throughout his relationship with Hella. Mm-hmm. Um, and their relationship, it was on again, off again, but it was always stormy and characterized by fights. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they were seeing each other, he was with other women. So they discussed that they would get married if she got pregnant. And now nothing helps a relationship like a child. Yeah, really. <laughs> Definitely babies bringing, bringing couples together since the year one. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I, think, I think like saying you're going to have a child to fix your relationship is like throwing a hand grenade into it. And then just, yeah. It, I, oh, it, you're going to have fewer arms to deal with. So, you know, <laughs> makes sense. So, yeah, not a good idea. But, um. So she got pregnant, and uh, something that I read said he beat her. (laughs) So she got an abortion. And then she got pregnant again, and he left for weeks and balked at the idea of marriage. So she scheduled another abortion, but he returned prior to that and said he'd marry her. What a guy. It was really romantic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they were married on November 29th, 1975. She was 28 and four months pregnant, and Richard was 39. So they bought a house in Newtown on Newfield Lane, which Newtown is also pretty infamous now Mm -hmm. because of the school shootings, but it is a very well-to-do, quiet Mm -hmm. town prior to that. Um, And in May 1976, their first son, Andrew, was born, and then they went on to have two more children, Thomas and Christina. So, in the meantime, their rocky relationship continued. Uh, Richard continued to lie to cover up his affairs, and he would lie about his flight schedule. So, Mm -hmm. I think basically he would say that he's coming back on Tuesday, but his flight would really come back Sunday, and he would just go be with his girlfriend in the meantime. And now, Richard made a lucrative salary. He was making over $120,000 a year by 1985. Um, And something I read said he earned three times more than Hella, but he made her pay for household expenses, the children's clothes, most of the nanny's salary, and her Toyota Tercel. While he went off and bought whatever he wanted, uh, he bought very expensive, um, like a backhoe. He bought like expensive equipment to use for no reason whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he also was an avid gun collector. He had um, pistols and rifles and uh, hand grenades. Oh, oh, wow. Really coming full circle on that yeah. one. <laughs> yep. Bringing the hand grenades back in. So there's at least one instance where they said that Richard may have been physically abusive towards her. Now, I did read again that when she was originally pregnant, he beat her mm-hmm. and that's why she had the abortion. But when I was looking at other information, it said that he was physically abusive on at least one occasion. So I'm not sure exactly how abusive he was, but on this, at least on this one occasion, and once is more than enough. Just gonna say that. Yep. Yeah. So he hit her hard enough um, that she got a black eye. This was in 1977. The Crafts were visiting their friends in New Hampshire, and this is so bizarre. Richard reached over the dinner table and squeezed a pimple on her nose, making her bleed. So what? she jumped up and kicked him in the leg, and he stood up and slugged her in the face. This is like at the dinner table like with their say, friends. If that's in public. Can you imagine what they what was happening? Right behind closed yeah. doors. Yeah, yeah. It escalated really quickly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which makes me think it's definitely not the first. That's like the first time known. But it can't. That's not. You know, that wouldn't be the first time. Yeah, it's just really like it's just 
a very bizarre situation and so she ended up falling to the floor and the friend said that richard's expression was impassive the whole time and hella went to sleep in the guest room and she said uh you can just not join me that would be great and she said that they all just proceeded to ignore her bruised face and no one said anything about it afterwards weird really friends really weird yeah, guys, if anything like that ever happens in our group, like, don't, let's say something about that. Because that yeah. just doesn't... If you see something, say something. You, yes, if you see something, mm-hmm. you should say something. Yeah. I mean, this is 1977. Were, was it a little bit more okay. acceptable for men to be hitting women? I'm not I, saying it should have been. I, I'm just saying, I don't know that it would have been, but mm-hmm. more like maybe it wasn't as, like, normal for the woman to, like, speak out or for her friends to speak up for her or something and say, like you know don't do that <laughs> i always wonder how these reports come out too like who who gave that was it a friend or was it like how do we know this story happened because that perspective also changes right what right. actually happened i believe this was testimony at oh. the trial from the friends that witnessed it interesting hmm. as i believe where it came from hmm. um but again so at least one situation where he was physically abusive towards her and it was witnessed Um, so Richard was gone from the home for days at a time. He would just disappear with his bags and Hella would never know when he, where he was or whether he was coming back. You know, he was a pilot, so he would leave for days at a time, but she said he'd also leave for gun shows and, you know, she just never knew where he was when he was coming back, what was going on. Um, and apparently even the minimal time that he spent at home was too much because in 1982, uh, he started a career as an unpaid hobby cop with the Newtown police. So he volunteered um, for free to be basically like a constable for the cops, like a rent-a-cop. Huh. Think like Paul Blart. <laughs> um, and he was really into this. He bought himself a Crown Victoria to make <laughs> himself feel like a cop. Now, this is concerning to me. Because I have seen people who want to be cops or corrections Uh officers or they just crave that position of power so badly that they would do it for free. And those are the precise people that you do not want in positions of power at all. And now I did I did um, read that he would also like respond to calls that he wasn't supposed to be at and would just like listen to the radio and show up and like just way over the top, like just way over the top so around 1984 doctors discovered that richard had colon cancer and only gave him a two percent chance of survival so he underwent surgery and they took a foot and a half of intestine lymph nodes and a section of his liver and hella cared for him after his surgery and during chemotherapy like a loving caring wife Uh, He was out of work during that initial cancer diagnosis and treatment, but he was able to return to work as a pilot in December 1985. Hmm. In February 1986, he started as a Southbury Auxiliary Constable for $7 an hour. So an upgrade from his new town hobby (laughs) composition. Mm -hmm. Yes, now he's getting $7 an hour. Um, He was finished with his chemo in July 1986. So that was in the summer. Mm -hmm. It was around that time that Hella hired a divorce lawyer. She said, I'm done. She suspected him of cheating. They did not have a loving relationship and he was constantly missing. So she told the divorce lawyer that nine years earlier he had been abusive. That was that time in 1977. Um, And she also told her that she suspected that he was cheating on her. So she told her to hire a private investigator. 
So in September, she hired Keith Mayo, who was a former police officer, and he was hired to look into Richard and his extramarital affairs. In September 1986, while this was going on, Hella told a friend, if I disappear, it won't be an accident. Oh. Okay. So I can't imagine what's going on behind closed doors where you would just say that to a friend. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Richard had an appointment with his oncologist on October 2nd. By this time, Hella had told him that she wanted a divorce and he allegedly tried to thwart the breakup by telling her that his cancer had returned and that he wouldn't take his meds. He is terrible. Wonderful human being. Like, I haven't heard one redeeming thing about yeah. him. It like, gets, except for maybe his disheveled hair. It gets so much worse. I was afraid of that. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know what he did to her, mm. but our listeners are still suspense. We need suspense. <laughs> um, she found out he was lying. I think she called his oncologist, found out that he was still in remission, and found out he was lying. Um, in October, Hell, Hella found out about Keith Mayo's findings. He confirmed that Richard was having an affair with an Eastern Airlines flight attendant from New Jersey named Nancy Dodd. Mm-hmm. So she was committed to proceeding with the divorce because she confirmed her suspicions. And now the divorce lawyer also had that information to include in the uh, divorce decree. So in October, she said to a friend, if anything happens to me, don't assume it was an accident. So, I mean, she's really like she something she can feel that something bad is looming. Also, if somebody says that, that's not just a like, okay, I'll put it in my calendar. Like it. (laughs) you shouldn't you do something about that as a friend like hey are you in danger like do you need help like maybe you should get out of the house yeah like i think she was really concerned about her children because she had three kids at the time too so it's not about just her leaving the house i mean she'd have to get rid of all of the kids too and i think there's probably a huge concern that he's a southbury police officer with Mm -hmm. ties to the new town cops and it's like is anybody gonna believe her over him and so there's like a lot of underlying things going on how old are the kids at this time uh they were 10 7 7 or 8 that was 10 7 or 8 and 5 okay Mm, yeah that's hard they're young yes um, so in a letter in October, Hella told her mother that she had informed Richard that she wanted a divorce and that he was, quote, seemingly not happy about the idea. So uh, by this time, Hella had confronted Richard with the evidence of his infidelity. She demanded a divorce and Richard knew that this would cost him dearly financially. Um, and he also knew that she was planning to seek custody of the children in the divorce. Mm-hmm. So November 12th, the divorce writ was ready to go. Uh, Richard Kraft said that he was willing to accept service of it, but then he said the sheriff was unavailable to serve the document. But then when they talked to the sheriff, the sheriff said, no, I was available. Richard never called me back. So November 14th, Richard and Hella had a huge fight. She had found receipts that he was buying toys for the children with his girlfriend in New Jersey. So Richard again said he was ready and willing to accept service of the divorce writ, Um, And he was going to be served that day while the kids were out of the house. She was trying to spare him the embarrassment. And he snuck out the back of the house with the kids. They were going to serve him the next day, but he was flying. The divorce papers were never served because, again, on November 18th, Hella's friend dropped her off around 7 p.m. after her trip. And that was the last time that anyone saw her. 
So at the time of Hella's disappearance, they had a live-in nanny, Dawn Marie Thomas. She was 19 years old. Uh, She was home that night, uh, but she worked a second job, so she didn't come home until around 2 a.m. There was a snowstorm that night, too, so it took her longer to get home than usual. And the nanny actually said that she thought she heard Hella cough around 3 a.m. She was getting over from a cold, Hmm. thought she heard her cough, um, and that proved to be a snag in the trial later on in terms of the timeline. So... Starting on November 18th into the 19th, there was a three-day storm. It started out as snow and transitioned to heavy rain over the next few days. That also is important. So on November 19th, around 6 a.m., Richard got everyone up in a hurry and said that they need to go to his sister's house in Westport. The power had gone out because of the snow, and he said it was too cold. He wanted to get everyone out due to the lack of heat, um, even though they had kerosene heaters, a fireplace, and a generator in the house. Dawn said that Richard was uncharacteristically in a hurry. She said they also left out the front door instead of the garage. And Dawn asked where Hella was. And Richard said she was probably already at his sister's house and they would meet her there. So when they got there, Hella wasn't there. And Richard didn't say anything about it. So Dawn Uh, asked where Hella was. And Richard said he didn't know. I'm trying to put myself in any of these situations. Like, I, maybe I know I like to know where everybody is at any given time, but I would, that would be so unacceptable to me. I'd be like, well, is she coming? Is she driving? What other car? I'd have so many questions. Right. And why would she leave by herself in the middle of a snowstorm after yeah. she had just been out flying the night before? I mean, she'd be at home resting. She wouldn't yeah. go on her own. Yeah. So Richard ran errands during the day. He went to um, Caldors, which throwback. Yeah. I don't know if anybody remembers <laughs> oh, I Caldors. Remember Caldors. Yep. Yeah, good. That's actually where Walmart is in Southington now. That's where it was. Oh, yeah. Um, but so he went to Caldor and he bought um, two comforters and two pillows. And he also went to the bank to deposit $300 for Hella's curtain business. So she had a side curtain business with her friend. And then he went back and he picked the kids and the nanny up at his sister's house around 7 p.m. And the nanny said that he fell asleep behind the wheel on the way home. Oh, so he was tired, which is also because he was a pilot, right? He, so, yes, he was a pilot. Um, wasn't he used to being up for long periods of time or I don't know. You would think so. But I mean, if he was really busy and had a lot of adrenaline the night before, yeah. then yeah, that would that's make why you, I'm saying it's maybe suspicious. That would make mm. you tired. It's a little suspicious. <laughs> it's a little suspicious. All of this is, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So the morning of November 20th, Richard told Dawn, the nanny, Hella called and she said she's on her way to see her sick mother in Denmark. So that same day, uh, Crafts, Richard Crafts called her friend, Hella's friend, Rita, to say that Hella had phoned from London. She'd left the previous morning, the morning of the snowstorm, to go see her sick mother in Denmark. And now this friend Rita said that she had just talked to Hella about her mother four days prior and she hadn't mentioned she was sick. Um, and he said that Hella told her to give her a check for $300. And she would know what it was for. This is the $300 that he had deposited in the bank a couple days prior. I would have to say this is pretty diabolical because if I was a friend and I got this piece of information that I think that only me and her would know about, then it would sort of throw me off the, the scent for a minute, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So 
the friends kept calling the house and they were concerned, especially because she was starting to miss work. And that was very unlike her. She she was missing her flights and she wasn't calling in to say that she was missing the flights. Yeah. So one of the friends kept bugging Richard saying, you know, if you don't call and let them know that she needs an emergency leave, she's going to lose her job. Um, Richard never did. He kept saying the lines were busy or he told the friends that they should do it themselves. But the airlines were like, you, the husband yeah. has to call. And it was just, yeah. If, if, if this wasn't about, uh, if this wasn't part of a grim podcast, I would just think he's a major procrastinator because everything is <laughs> like, yeah, I'll just get divorced tomorrow. Or like, I'll, you know, I'll call tomorrow. Like I can, I can relate to that stuff, but yeah. not, just, not the rest of it. What was his reasoning for why she wouldn't have contacted anybody? It's like, they don't have right. phones yeah. in Denmark or in England I mean, anywhere. Maybe like, long distance, I guess, is yeah. expensive, but still, none of this altogether. It's way too suspicious. Yeah. So, like, some of the things that he said and did were smart. I'll give him credit for mm-hmm. that. Like the like depositing the check and then saying that the money was in the bank for the curtain business, and mm-hmm. so that he knew about that. But I think the thing that he did that was not smart was giving people inconsistent answers as to where she may have been. So he told some people he didn't know where she was. He told his friend that she was seeing a sick mother in Denmark. He told another person, I don't know. She left with a large suitcase and a fur coat that that friend knew was stored at a cleaner. Mm -hmm. Um, He told someone else, oh, um, I think she's going to visit friends in the Canary Islands. So, I mean, like, he gave, like, a bunch of different excuses. And they were probably talking to one another. At least a couple of them probably knew each other. I would hope so, yeah. They're like, hey, is she in the Canary Islands? The other one's like, no, I thought she was with her mother in Denmark. Yeah. Doing both. Globetrotting. Right. And And they're, like, really different. Like, like it's not like, oh, she, oh I just got what she city went wrong. From, yeah, she went from yeah. Denmark to the Canary Islands. She went from helping her ailing right. mother to right. vacation with her friends. And he actually was giving out, for the ones that he was telling that she was visiting the sick mother, he was giving people a phone number for her mother. So it was not a valid number. And I believe the people that were answering were speaking in Danish. So they couldn't understand or figure out how to get the correct number. Well, they found a friend that spoke Danish. So they called and they got the correct number for the mother and they didn't want to alarm her. They were just like, oh, you know, can we talk to Hella? She's staying with you. And the mother's like, no, she's not. She's not coming until April. So they called Mm -hmm. Richard to confront him with this information. And he was like, oh, she's old and dumb and probably didn't understand what you were talking about. She was confused. So. Oh, oh, the mother. Okay, I'm like, Hella is old and dumb? Like, your wife? <laughs> no. Although no, he probably mother. would talk he about her like that. He probably would talk about yeah. her that way, yeah. Right. And Hella, previously to her disappearance, she had written letters to her mother every two to three weeks and called every week or two. And she hadn't talked, spoken to her mother until November 17th. Since November 17th. Mm. So, the other weird thing is the nanny noticed that Hella's address book and the numbers listed on the back of the kitchen cabinet for emergencies were missing as was the nanny's address book that contained all of Hella's friends' numbers in case of an emergency. So nobody could contact all their friends. Mm -hmm. So November 20th and the 21st, Richard was on duty as a constable for the town of uh, Southbury, and he reported inconsistently. Mm -hmm. So that's good to know. On November 22nd, the nanny noticed a large grapefruit-sized dark stain on the rug of the craft's bedroom. Crafts told Dawn it was kerosene, which nobody really thought about at the time, is colorless and the odor does not last. 
Also, okay. also, why? why? <laughs> well, his story was that the when they lost power, he had the kerosene oh, heaters, okay. and he said he had them okay. in the bedroom, and he was filling them up, and it right. spilled on the the carpet. Still dumb, but not as dumb. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the next day, Richard went and ordered carpet for the three bedrooms in the house because what better time to redecorate than when your wife is missing? And he's he's not telling anyone he's concerned at this point. He's oh just... no! In fact, he told her friends that they were watching too much Miami Vice. <laughs> oh, that's no, that's a good point though. So no missing persons report has been filed yet. No, because she's not missing. She's not missing. Richard. She's traveling. Right, she's traveling. <laughs> yeah. She went to Denmark. He or he doesn't know. Or she's Mom's in the Canary Islands. Nobody knows. Yeah. Right. She can hmm. be anywhere, but she's not. She's, she's not, not missing. missing. That's the one place she is not. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't know where she is, and and he said that she would just disappear for you know weeks on end, but there was no information to substantiate that. Mothers of three often yeah. disappear for weeks on end I mean, without a reason. Yeah, right. Them, so but. I mean, remember back to the beginning, she had been in the car talking about her two turkeys for Thanksgiving yeah. and her oh, special yeah. recipes. So she just misses Thanksgiving leaves her three children misses the holidays oh, i misses wasn't even thinking that's about, really concerned yeah. that's more concerning yeah. because it seems like she gets excited for the holidays so this would be like a time she's looking forward to why is she not there correct correct so very suspicious this poor nanny is like the only one who's like <laughs> what is going on here right she, she has like the most information out of anyone right well she okay. did see the suspicious stain yeah. on the carpet so on December 1st, her friends called Hella's divorce lawyer, which the divorce lawyer also thought it was interesting that she hadn't heard from her. She oh, said, yeah. because normally people are hounding about whether the divorce writ has been served or, you know, they're following up on that and she hadn't heard from her. So the friends called the divorce lawyer and the divorce lawyer called Keith Mayo, who was advised. Um, he talked to a friend of his who's a lawyer and he said, you need to file a missing person report with Newtown before you start digging around for her. Because, I mean, Keith was a former police officer, mm-hmm. so he was like ready to investigate. But he was like, file a missing person report. So Richard never filed a missing report person report. This came from Keith Mayo, huh. who told That's New- Newtown police. Mm-hmm. So Keith Mayo went to the Newtown police that day on December 1st um, and the Newtown police just didn't seem that worried at first they just weren't that interested in the case now remember richard yeah also was a former newtown hobby cop well so and if i'm if i'm the police i'm like but her husband isn't reporting her missing yeah her husband's not worried i know him he's such a good guy like if something was wrong like he he would be showing signs of something really wrong i guess but right and now at this time hella's car was parked in the airport parking lot so that sort of set up the story that she okay. took off, yeah. flew away to Denmark or Canary Islands or wherever she seemed to go. <laughs> so on December 3rd, the police talked to uh, Richard and he said he hadn't seen his wife since November 19th. And he said that he hadn't reported his wife missing. It was because it was for Hella's reputation and his own. He didn't want to air his dirty linen in public. And I quote, hmm. he told the police that she'd run off with her boyfriend Oh. who was from Westchester, New York. <laughs> okay. So that's another new story. So the police asked Richard if he would take a lie detector test. And he's like, yep, no problem. So December 4th takes a lie detector test and he passes with flying colors. And Newtown what? PD says, see, he didn't do it. He didn't murder her. No, nope, What did they good. ask him on the lie detector <laughs> test? I did not write it down, but it was like, did you murder your wife? Like okay. they were like very pointed questions. So I'm circling back now. So the, the polygrapher said 
He doesn't show any response. I've had only one other subject whose response was so flat. Remember that Richard was a pilot for an arm of the CIA during the secret war in Vietnam. So they suspected that he may have been trained trained to beat a polygraph. Right. Um, They said that basically you would like hurt yourself when you were answering baseline questions like biting your lip or digging your fingernails into your like really hurting yourself so that your truthful baseline answers were elevated so that when you were lying and your heart rate actually spikes, it would match. You would stop hurting yourself and it would match the truthful answers that you were giving. I'm just taking notes for when I have to take a polygraph. When you have to, when you have to <laughs> fake. I mean, and now lie detector tests are not given the same sort of credibility yeah. that they were previously. Like people understand that they're wrong all the time because if I took one, I'm like such an anxious person. They'd be like, you're <laughs> lying about your name. And I'm like, I swear I'm not. I'm that Here's nervous. Here's my birth certificate. Right. Tell us your facts in the beginning of the episode. <laughs> my, my heart rate would be skyrocketed. Yeah. So Newtown police was like, well, that's good enough for us. He didn't do it. Like he's one. He's one of us. One <laughs> of us. So, uh, but Keith Mayo didn't buy it so he continued to conduct his own investigation on the side he actually dug through the local dump with a team of people for three days looking for the rug that came from the house because they were like he got rid of this rug it has to be somewhere so they're looking for the rug with blood on it so they found something that looked similar and it ended up getting taken to the crime lab and keith mayo actually contacted the prosecutor who uh, notified the state police there's like a major crime squad um, that got involved and that started garnering additional interest in the case so interestingly dawn concerned for her safety left the house around december 18th the next day richard reported her missing to the newtown police this oh is the nanny right so yeah so the next what? day so she goes this nanny leaves the house and one day later he calls the police and reports her missing but he never reported Hella missing. And he called his sister, Karen, to tell her that Dawn was missing, the nanny. And he told her, uh, he complained that the Newtown police, quote, think I've chopped off Hella's head. <laughs> um, Which okay. nobody has said anything <laughs> like that whatsoever. I so, was actually going to ask. So they, they did the polygraph. So they suspected murder at this point. Or they just were like, she's missing. And I like, think they also, suspected, by the way, did you murder her? I think they suspected foul play. Okay. okay. So, yeah. I mean, she's completely missing. So unless they think she's yeah. like held in a cabin somewhere, kidnapped, I, yeah. I'm assuming they thought she was dead at okay. the time. Um, oh, and despite Hella's absence, the craft Christmas cards were sent out with her name on it. So really just going forward with that story about she just walked up and left her three children to yep. go do whatever she's doing so on christmas eve in 1986 the judge signed the search warrant to search the craft home for evidence so the probable cause for the warrant was completely circumstantial but it was enough for the warrant so they were relying on the fact that hella had hired a pa pa a pi to look into crafts infidelity hella wanted a divorce the statements she made to her friend about if friends it happens to me if something happens to me it's not an accident look into it the dark patch on the craft's rug that the nanny indicated was there and the inconsistent statements that Richard was telling to the friends and acquaintances. So the next day prior to the search of the home, the prosecutor delivered a letter to the Newtown Police Department removing them from the case. 
So the state police would now have exclusive jurisdiction over the case. Good. Because, right? <laughs> In this case, yes. Yes. So the, the prosecutor did not feel that the Newtown police were taking the case seriously and said that there may have been some bias because of Kraft's relationship to their department. Um, and one of the Newtown detectives had said that Crafts was cleared of murder after he passed the polygraph and that rubbed the prosecutor the wrong way. So the prosecutor just didn't think they were capable of fairly investigating the case okay. and the state police took over. So the police executed the search warrant the day after Christmas. They found a note dated December 23rd from Richard that was fastened to a cupboard and it said, quote, Hella, I'm at my mother's with the children. Please come. We love you. I have your car with me and keys for the truck and the rabbit are on the stairs. The Ford is out of commission. So the note was dated December 23rd, but the uh, Richard left with the children for vacation in Florida on the 22nd. all of this is so strange like i wish i knew what was going through his head like i don't know i it's all weird she'll be home tomorrow like (laughs) like why of all days she would come home that day and find a note and be like oh okay i'll I'll get in the horde so he he planted the note knowing that the cops were going to come search but i don't understand the date so he dates it december 23rd they left the 22nd And they confirmed that he made a purchase in New Jersey on the 23rd. So it's not like he swung back and like dropped (laughs) off the note. It's not like they left for Florida and he was like, oh, I forgot to leave a note. And then they go back to the house. Like he was gone. So why would you date the note for after you have left? Well, and I was going to say some days I don't know the actual date, but it's right near Christmas. Like you probably do know the date at that point. And you also know the day that you're leaving. Right. Yeah. So basically just flagged for the police that Richard knew the police were coming. Also, when they uh, tried the Ford, it did work. So for him to say it was out of commission, they were like, why even? Yeah, like why? (laughs) Just why? So the police searched the house. They noticed that several pieces of the carpet in the master bedroom had been removed, along with the padding underneath. And they could see that in the areas where the padding was not removed, that it was still in good condition. Um, And the spot where the nanny had said that there was a dark grapefruit size stain had also been removed. And they also saw the house was in complete disarray. Like Hmm. the furniture was all rearranged. There was dirty laundry everywhere. So basically Hella leaves and the house just falls apart Mm -hmm. because he did nothing and Mm -hmm. she took care of the house and the children. But the furniture being rearranged, I think, was actually like a diversionary tactic so that they couldn't try to piece together a story or where things had been or look for evidence. So they brought in a woman who had helped Hella decorate oh, and had ooh. her put the room back together huh. the way that it had been. Um, what so, pressure for that woman? Right. Like, right. We were like, oh, I don't know. Was it on the, was it, I don't know. Was the table on that side of the room? Was it on this side? I don't know. You'd think maybe she has like photos like schematics. or like a yeah, <laughs> yeah. oh, blueprints or something, yeah. you know, if you're like ordering something for someone's home. I, I guess. Think. Yeah. Sure. But yeah, I mean, you wouldn't know maybe exactly which way, the, which I just remembered because otherwise she could just send them the pictures. Right? Yeah. So she could. I, they had photos in 19. But not cell phones yeah. with photos. So. <laughs> no, they weren't texting photos no. to each other. But I think, yeah, I th- maybe she had schematics. They yeah. did indeed have cameras in 1976. Yes, yes. 86. Also, 86. I really like the word schematics. So I'm just going to say it one more time. So, uh, so she put the room back the way that it had been before so that they could look for evidence where they would expect it to be based on the information that they had. Okay. So they brought in Dr. Henry Lee, which... 
We all love me some Dr. Uh, Henry Lee. Yep. So we all know and love him. At this time, he was a young forensic scientist that was employed with the state. Now he is one of the world's foremost forensic scientists. He's been called into work on the most notorious cases, including John Bonet, O.J. Simpson, Lacey Peterson, D.C. sniper shootings. And he actually reinvestigated the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Ooh. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Fascinating. So he's like super smart. He's also come in to talk to one of my law school classes and like showed us crime scene photos. And he's just like the smartest, coolest dude. That's awesome. As a, a quick aside, I was watching the Staircase documentary mm-hmm. on Netflix. Great and documentary. He's, he's in there, and I I am just fascinated by this. Right, they're doing all these jury interviews and like focus groups to see how people would respond to him. And they don't like him. And they right? don't like him, and they don't believe him, and they don't trust him. And then you know later on, I, I won't exactly spoil it, but there's like the states like blood specialist or whatever his title is um and the other guy is not good at his job like notoriously like lies ruins Mm -hmm. other people's lives and it's funny because the the prosecution's like well you signed his book like he has your book and you signed it like great work keep up the good job and he was just kind of like what am I supposed to say? Like, do better, kid? Like, he's like, that's what you write when a fan approaches you. Um, so I just I just think it's funny that he keeps popping up now that we've mm-hmm. started to just get into more true crime. Like, mm-hmm. he's kind of everywhere. Oh, yeah, he's involved in everything. Like, he is the foremost person. Um, so he came in to do his chemical tests with his team of scientists. So he found blood, a blood smear on the Kraft's mattress and on towels and washcloths in the bathroom so he did the luminol test and came up highlighter blue um and he later confirmed that the blood smear on the mattress was consistent with hella's blood type Mm. so the police ended up searching the home for 48 hours which seems like a very long time but they were saying that they go in and they have to um take pictures Mm -hmm. of absolutely everything so that lawyers can't go in later and say evidence was planted or moved or anything like that so that would be very time consuming to catalog everything like that and the police actually towed richard's ford crown vic to the state police headquarters uh which will prove to be a mistake later on hmm so after the search the police really didn't have anything to go on so they found this blood smear but even if dr lee matched the blood type on the mattress and towels to hella there's no body and they have nothing to go on and if it wasn't a lot like she could have cut herself shaving Mm -hmm. or like right could just been any kind of a cut right it wasn't a ton of blood on the mattress it was just like a streak right and it and it didn't even have to be during that time frame so you think about like if you looked at my mattress like there might be blood on the side of it from like you said if you're shaving your leg or something like that or a cat or something though mm-hmm. i don't think do cats have the same blood type as humans so i, I thought you from a cat scratch i thought so too yeah i'm like many of those that makes let's more go sense. with that <laughs> yeah. let's go with that um so the police the state police were just getting frustrated because they just really didn't have enough to go on and they felt like newtown police department had been holding out on them on critical information which they had said that they had told them everything but they hadn't told them a key piece of information so in a desperate attempt for additional information one of the state police detectives stopped by southbury police department to ask if anyone saw anything strange on the night of the storm The state police detective was told for the first time that one of the Southbury officers, Richard Wildman, had seen crafts with a wood chipper that night. So the Southbury Police Department had not thought that that information was important because no one's imagination was as horrifying as reality. 
So the oh. Southbury Police Department mentioned that um, a roads department driver, Joey Hine, had also spotted a wood chipper after midnight on River Road. So the state police were like, no. They were like, no. They're- after midnight? After midnight, yes, he had seen like, the wood chipper. Like just casually on the side of the road, not like not on anybody's property, just like out in the wild parked on a bridge yep u-haul whichever on the bridge okay u-haul makes it weird too Mm mm-hmm and it was the middle of a snowstorm right it was so turned into rain the timing is really weird so joey Hines swears that it was the night of the 18th into the 19th that he saw this he said because he recalls he worked his normal shift and then he ended up getting woken up by his wife to go in to plow the snow because the snow came earlier than he thought so he was driving by slowly plowing and stopped and saw this wood chipper so he's looking at it so he swears that it was that night it couldn't have been that night based on receipts and the timing when they investigate it so there's some sort of disconnect there but you know people convince themselves of certain things and the timing of things so like what are the odds that on another night he saw someone who wasn't richard crafts with a wood chipper just casually doing what they're doing chipping wood into the (laughs) into the river yeah so so two detectives find this joey hine and he said that he saw this wood chipper in the early morning hours of november 19th this is while he was out clearing snow and again he said it was positive it was the 19th because he'd worked his normal shift and got called in and then he said he saw the chipper again around 5 30 down by the bridge so this witness joey hine he brought them to lake zor and the detectives there could see that the wood chips were about an inch thick and they had been spread out with a pitchfork or a shovel. So they knew they were in the right area. They noticed a piece of paper and some stained bright blue material on the riverbank. And one of the detectives picked up the envelope and it was an envelope from the American Cancer Society. And it had one of those cellophane windows mm-hmm. and it said Miss Helicrafts. Ooh, goosebumps. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> and one of the detectives said... Can you imagine a chipper? I'll retire if this guy put her through a chipper. Oh, I have full-blown goosebumps right now. Full body chills. So Hines wasn't the only witness. There was another witness, Joe Williams, who said on November 20th, which seems to be the correct date, he heard a loud noise. He saw a truck and a wood chipper in operation on this bridge. He saw two piles of wood and bags of plastic or cloth in the back of the truck. So it was on a U-Haul truck. And he said that he saw a man cowering between the truck and the wood chipper. And he said the man was wearing a green poncho and a wide-brimmed hat like police wear. Or constable wear. Mm -hmm. Or (laughs) rent-a-cops. Paul Blart. (laughs) And then this other man, Richard Wildman, who was a Southbury constable, had seen Richard Crafts parked. Now, just a reminder, Richard Crafts was working that night as a Southbury constable on November 20th and the 21st. This is when he was inconsistent. Yes, he had reported in, in regularly. So... Richard Wildman said that he saw Richard Crafts parked in a parking lot at a Southbury school around 4 a.m. And he was with a U-Haul and a wood chipper. And Wildman asked him about the wood chipper. And Crafts said that he was just cleaning up limbs from the November 18th storm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there was no pun intended. But mm-hmm. so no limbs had been down during the storm. And there was no other need for the wood chipper. Stop saying limbs. <laughs> 
<laughs> limbs. So Wildman saw the U-Haul again around 4.30 in the commuter lot. So the police now are like, okay, a, a wood chipper. Like they, they just, they wouldn't have imagined this no. in their wildest dreams. This wasn't information that Newpound, Newtown and Southbury were withholding from the state police. Right. They just didn't have the imagination for reality. Ugh. Yep. So the police start looking in this area of Lake Zor along this riverbank. So they sent in a dive team to search the lake. And when the state police divers begin their search, Richard tells his brother-in-law, let them dive. There's no body. It's gone. So that seems suspicious. Uh, Yeah. It's in Denmark. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) So the dive team found a chainsaw and a saw blade underwater near the bridge. The saw and saw blade both contain blood tissue and hair Mm. fragment. Mm -hmm. The chainsaw had the serial number filed off, but they were able to recover the serial number and it matched a receipt that was actually in Keith Mayo's possession. Hella had turned over a pile of papers when she began her investigation for the divorce. And one of those papers was the receipt for the chainsaw. Yikes. So they were able to confirm that that was Richard Kraft's chainsaw. Now, it meant nothing to Keith Mayo when he had seen it in December, because again, they're not thinking that like a chainsaw and a wood chipper were involved. So a team of people thawed the snow and sifted through the soil on the edge of this lake looking for evidence and bone fragments. Henry Lee's team worked around the clock for two weeks, and he estimated it took up up to a tenth of his budget for the entire year. Wow. When Dr. Lee had compiled what had been given to him from this river road area, he had 69 certifiably human bones with the largest being only an inch and a half long, weighing a total three quarters of an ounce. So we're talking like slivers of bone that they found five droplets of blood, two tooth caps, 2,660 strands of blonde hair, which, side note, who was responsible for counting those? Because I would lose count midway and be like, oh, no, I have to start over again. <laughs> that, was, that was actually my thought. Is who, who pissed somebody off that day and yeah. had to count the hairs? That was the intern. And the, yeah, they were probably doing it for free, if I had to guess. Yeah. They were like, you're responsible for the hair, and it's free. Bye. Yep. yep. Um, three ounces of human tissue, a portion of a finger a polished fingernail and a toenail and they also found a piece of blue fabric that was similar to clothing that hella had been wearing that night i'm blown away that they could find this at all in just thinking about how small all those pieces must have been i think so they i believe they did some sifting on the actual bank of the river but i believe they also brought stuff back in trash bags and were like sifting through like 30 trash bags of soil that they were sifting through to get these pieces crazy and now dr lee also searched the ford crown vic and in the trunk he found hair human flesh bone fragments and the same blue fibers that they had found so i'm putting a couple things together (laughs) so in the note when the fake note he leaves that's dated for the day after he leaves for his fake vacation or wherever he goes 
he tells her not to get in the Ford or something because it's out of commission. It's oh. out of commission because it's got a shit ton of evidence in the trunk oh. of it. Yes, yeah. very important so evidence. So he's probably trying to keep them away from looking at it because, oh, oh the car doesn't work. Why, yep. like, why would I check this car? Oh, right. Smart. Though, I mean, you're specifically putting it in this note and drawing attention <laughs> yeah. to it. So, like, I'm just thinking that backfired, mm-hmm. but... So this was all prior to DNA technology, so they couldn't genetically confirm the tissue belonged to Hella, but they did match the blood type. So they did not have a body. All they had was that list of things that I mentioned that didn't amount to much. What percentage would have to have been considered a body? (laughs) I'm laughing, but really, I mean, do you need like 100 ounces of flesh? I'm just saying in general, when they're investigating a murder, they find a torso or a full body or something. They don't find like three ounces of human tissue. So they needed something. They needed a death to charge crafts with murder. They couldn't charge him with murder until they had a body and or a death. Because what they found doesn't necessarily imply somebody is dead, right? It's just because of it's such a small amount. Yeah. Like the fingertip, somebody could have cut off your finger to torture you, right? Mm-hmm. Or like a few True. drops of blood. Maybe they stabbed you, but it wasn't fatal. So I, I could kind of see where they're going with this. Mm-hmm. They could have. And again, you don't have the DNA technology. So you just have right. the blood type matching. Mm-hmm. Um, and his defense at trial actually was that she gone girl him (laughs) like a very very violent version of gone girl where she like left her fingertips and nails and bones and teeth and just bounced and left her three children and framed him for murder that That would be that would be brilliant yeah but i mean that's like a very violent version of gone girl yes yeah like leaving teeth and fingertips like i don't know really aggressive but again you're gonna leave your three children like that was like a key the husband yes absolutely but yeah. the three children I, I don't see it yeah no so this is where again so they don't have the body they need the body or or a homicide like they need the homicide to charge crafts with murder so this is where h wayne carver the second come comes in he was the state's acting medical examiner and becomes the chief medical examiner later on uh this is a grim fact i didn't know this so he actually became the acting medical examiner because his predecessor had lost her job partly because her dobermans had been discovered in the autopsy room licking blood from (gasps) feet and the floor oh no Mm -hmm. oh dogs love feet i was gonna say my dogs love licking feet but gross wouldn't let him in there yeah, gross. That's not a place you there should take your dog There would also be dog, dog hair everywhere. No, no, that's not, that's not dog friendly. No. <laughs> so, again, so improper disposal of a dead body is actually only a misdemeanor. So unless Dr. Huh. Carver agreed that Hella had been murdered, they couldn't arrest him. Huh. So this forensic team, the detectives and the chief medical examiner all met to discuss the evidence that they had. The two most important pieces of evidence were this tooth that had a dental crown attached to it and a piece of a bone from a skull that they said had been disconnected in a barbaric way. Now going to the teeth, apparently Hella had very soft teeth and her dentist had worked on almost every one of her teeth with numerous root canals and 13 crowns, including two crowns surrounding a false tooth. And her last visit with her dentist was on October 30th, 1986. So, I mean, like two weeks before she went missing when he took a full set of x-rays. 
So they had a forensic dentist on Henry Lee's team, Dr. Lee's team, ID this tooth crown that was found on the water's edge and confirmed it with Hella's dental records. So he said, yes, he said this tooth crown. And and he he testified at trial that they have to take x-rays of this tooth from like all these different angles to say that it's the same size and shape and the same tooth. So... They looked at the forensic evidence. They looked at the state police evidence and Carver declared that the manner of death was homicide. So the chief medical examiner's office issued a death certificate on January 13th, 1987. And the death certificate was weird because it officially Hella had died in Meriden, Connecticut on January 13th. Oh yeah. Because that's when he declared it a homicide and when they have the information. So it's a little bit bizarre. So with the death certificate, the state police detectives went and got an arrest warrant. So Crafts was arrested in the very early morning hours of January 14th. On January 13th, a lieutenant was at his house and they called Richard and said, we have an arrest warrant. Come out. Don't make this difficult. (laughs) Richard said, I'm tired. I'll take care of it in the morning. See, procrastinator. Tomorrow. See, you're right. You're right. He is a procrastinator. Can you imagine the cops are like, we have your, we have a warrant for your arrest. Just come out. You're like, I'll see you within the morning. I can imagine that. I just need, I I just need a good night's sleep. (laughs) Just go away. So the lieutenant said, I swear to God, this is what I say to my kids. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not asking you. Come out. I have your arrest warrant. So another detective called him. He said the same thing. It seemed like there was sort of like a standoff situation, like they didn't know what was going to go on. Um, He finally agreed to come out after midnight. And then he said he just wanted to put the kids to bed. And then he said he just wanted another minute. But he finally came out around 1230 a.m. So I think technically he was arrested on January 14th. Okay. The children were put in the temporary custody of the Kraft's longtime friend. And then Richard's sister ended up um, caring for the children and getting custody for them so let's go back let's go back what did what did richard do here so despite there being no body police were able to piece together most of what had happened thanks to witnesses forensic science and a good old paper trail mm-hmm. so richard crafts had been planning this for at least a week before hell went missing and i think it was one of those his opinion was if that divorce writ got served, he was in a terrible position financially. He was going to lose custody of the children. He at, at one point had called the divorce attorney and asked her if infidelity was one of the reasons for the divorce. So he like that information was going to come out. He was in a terrible position in the court. Yep. So he wanted to take care of Hella before the writ got served. And that's why he was evading service. So on November oh. 10th, Richard, so this is more than a week before she went missing. Richard bought a brand new $15,000 dump truck that was supposed to be delivered on November 13th. He said that he bought it for spreading gravel on another property that they owned on in Newtown. It was like 600 yards from their Newfield Lane property. And I believe it was a piece of land that they were buying to build a house. Okay. I, I believe. So he said he bought this new dump truck to spread gravel, but he asked that a hitch be installed on it so that he could tow things, you know, yeah, like, like wood chippers. I don't know. Just maybe. spitballing. Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. wood chippers. 
the delivery of that truck was delayed so that didn't work out in his favor that same day he called a tree service in norwalk to ask about renting a large wood chipper because you know he okay. needed to clean up limbs on his property from the snowstorm on the mm-hmm. 18th that he, he didn't sure know did. about yep he sure did on november 13th richard ordered a large chest freezer and then he drove to brewster new york for a flathead shovel and fireproof gloves i'm sure he passed multiple stores along the way to new york uh, at places that would have carried these items but drove to new york to get them so on november 14th is when richard rented the wood chipper to be picked up on november 18th Hmm. november 17th crafts picked up this large chest freezer which was not found on the property when they searched oh Mm -hmm. on november 18th crafts tried to rent a wood chipper from darien rentals so the worker told him that the toyota pickup he was driving was too small to tow this machine and richard insisted that the chipper be held for him and paid for the rental even though he didn't have a truck to tow it until (laughs) november 20th Okay. And now, and this, they testified to this at trial, his insistence that he needed this wood chipper ASAP. Uh, so the investigators determined based upon the blood spatter that Hella was likely struck in the head at least twice with an object in the room. Now they suspected it may, may have been, um, he had one of those like heavy duty police flashlights in the bathroom that was in their room charging. So they think it was something like that. The blood spatter was not something that would match like a gunshot wound. It was like medium velocity spray or something like that. Um, so they suspected it was just like a blunt object. They're not sure, you know, whether, she died from being struck in the head whether he strangled her but they think that she fell and hit her head on the mattress which caused the blood smear um and then she was bleeding onto the carpet which is what caused the blood stain and then they think that he used the sheet and the bedspread that he later replaced at cal door to sort of roll her up bring her outside into the garage they think that this new freezer was in the garage because remember the nanny said that they took him out the front door instead of the garage like they normally did so they think he put her in the freezer until she was frozen solid um and then they think he took her body out of there brought it to that other property that he had where he cut it up into pieces and wrapped it in plastic you know I so I was doing America's Test Kitchen uh, classes. This is relevant, trust me. Um, a, a while ago, and uh, I learned that if you want to cut like chicken or something, they actually recommend that you um, freeze it first, or at least partially freeze it, and it makes it easier to cut. So perhaps he watched the same America's uh, Test uh, Kitchen. And uh, who's running America's Test Kitchen? Is it crafts? Girls. <laughs> Who run the world? Girls. <laughs> yeah, so just, I would think just a thought. If you <laughs> are cutting why. if you're cutting frozen chicken, right, there's like less juice. It makes yeah. less of a mess. That's exactly it. It's not as slippery. So that was the idea. So this, I have a grim fact for you going off of that. Mm-hmm. Um the book that I read said it would only take six or seven hours to freeze a thin woman. Thank God it would take a lot longer to freeze me. Somebody's <laughs> gonna find me in the amount of time it's gonna take to freeze my ass. <laughs> So they think, yeah, basically he took the frozen body, brought her to this other 
Kuratuk lot that he had um, cut her body up into pieces, wrapped it in plastic, and then brought it with him. November 20th is when he was able to actually secure the wood chipper and a truck that was big enough to tow it, which was the U-Haul truck, because remember, the delivery of his dump truck was delayed, so it <laughs> yep. spoiled his plans. He got a wood chipper that could cut logs 12 inches in diameter. So we're not talking about like cleaning up fallen limbs no. on your yard. I mean, like that is serious. That's serious wood. You keep saying limbs. Serious of branches wood. and things. Limbs. <laughs> so again, the freezer he bought was never found. They think he disposed of it in some sort of landfill or dump or anything so that he wouldn't have to worry about the evidence. Hmm. He returned the wood chipper on November 21st. So again, this is where I said that Joey Hine had sworn that he saw him on oh, November 19th, yeah. but he couldn't he secure. Yeah, he couldn't secure the wood chipper. But again, what are the odds that he saw a different yeah. man chipping? I mean, he thought it was wood, but chipping a body into this lake. I think he that yeah, one guy got his agree. dates wrong because, yep. again, that other person saw crafts in the parking lot with the wood chipper. You keep saying wood chipper and my brain keeps going, how much wood would a wood chipper chip if a wood chipper could chip wood? A wood chipper would chip that it, much wood if a wood chipper could chip wood. Yep. <laughs> wow. That's good, right? It was very good. That's good. So uh, Crafts was charged with the murder of his wife. Um, and when this was going on, people asked what was his motive. And I'm so sorry, I have to. They said he loved her too mulch. <laughs> Oh no. It's so bad. I had to. I just saw it. it was it was literally listed as a bad pun by the news, but I had to. He loved her too mulch. Aww. So the case was originally brought in Danbury, um, but it was transferred to New London due to publicity. One of his claims was that he would never be able to get a fair trial anywhere in Connecticut because it was such a huge deal and like the headlines were horrible, like chopped to pieces. Small and, state. Oh, yeah. 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 So there was no body, so the prosecutor had to convince the jury both that Hella was actually dead mm. and that Richard murdered her. And this was all based on circumstantial evidence. So I just wanted to pause for a second. We've all heard the term circumstantial evidence, mm -hmm. um, and we all think it knows we know what it means, but there was actually um, there's jury instructions on circumstantial evidence, and I think it's very helpful. So this is this is specifically from Connecticut's jury instructions. It says there are generally speaking two types of evidence from which a jury can properly find the truth as to the facts of the case. One is direct evidence, such as the testimony of an eyewitness. The other is indirect or circumstantial evidence. That is the inferences which may be drawn reasonably and logically from the proven facts. Let me give you an example of what I mean by direct evidence and circumstantial evidence. If you're looking out a third floor window and you see smoke rising out the window, that's direct evidence that there is smoke outside. It's also circumstantial evidence that there is a fire of some sort below the window. Gotcha. Okay. So I think that's very helpful. Yeah. So the inferences that you can draw from direct evidence and from missing evidence and putting the pieces together. So I mentioned this before, but his lawyer's argument basically was that Hella is not dead. And if she is dead, Richard didn't kill her. But he was saying she took off. This is she gone girled him. She left her kids. She took her bags. She packed up and she bounced. Mm. Based on what track record are they, right, tr they right. trying to like hang that argument on? Had she ever done anything like that before where 
Richard had said that she had taken off and she was she was a flight attendant. So there probably were periods where she mm-hmm. was missing for like a few days at a time. Sure. But you can just check her. Just check the itinerary. Yeah. <laughs> confirm. But I, he was really trying to push that home and say she took off. And then he was trying to say that she had this boyfriend and in New York. And so he was trying to shift the blame. But again, they didn't have anything to go on to prove that that was the situation. Right. And her friends and family said she would not have left her three children right. behind. I mean, like part of her concern with the divorce was their custody and right. making sure that they were taken care of. So they were like, she would not have left them. So remember I mentioned that the um, Crown Victoria had been towed to the state police lot and that Dr. Lee yep. had found the hair and blue fibers, human flesh, bone fragments in the trunk of his car. And that was really important. That was really important to tie him to it because it's his car. So the judge ruled that that evidence was inadmissible. <gasps> because the search warrant failed to include the car once it had been removed from the property which come on uh, yeah that's just such a bu- like that's such a bummer that's one of those like technicalities yep. that you hear of somebody like getting off on a technicality yep. but yeah so none of that evidence could come in so that was a blow for the state because it was a vital link into proving his guilt but they carried on with what they had and now the trial involved just about every forensic science known to man. They had serology, radiology, ballistics, hair and fiber experts, FBI experts. Even the manufacturer of the wood chipper testified. So one of the key pieces, again, to her death was this, um, the tooth. Yep. So the state called Dr. Karazalus to testify he was a dentist an oral surgeon and a forensic odontologist and they also called dr lowell levine who was um this is very interesting the part-time director of forensic science for the new york state police but in 1983 using german dental records he'd help identify the remains of joseph mangala who was the nazi criminal infamous for the experience uh, experiments on concentration camp prisoners and for the u.s congress he established that the corpse of president john f kennedy was indeed kennedy and he also identified victims from the ted bundy case oh oh geez so really important odontologist both of them agreed with reasonable scientific certainty that at least one of the tooth caps that they found had been placed in the mouth of helicrafts by her dentist wow and then this is just this is wild in preparation for trial, Dr. Carver obtained a frozen pig carcass that was fed through a wood chipper. Oh, no. And they videotaped it and the shape of and marks of the, 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 the pig was dead. It was frozen pig carcass. Oh my God, I hope so. so. I, yeah, it doesn't, not that it makes it any better, but like you guys, your faces were concerning me. So they did that uh, to show that the shape and the oh, marks on the pig's bone chips after this process were similar to the shape of Hella's bone fragments. And they used a young pig because of its size and the skin, which is similar to human skin in thickness and has the same amount of hair. That is a very grim fact. Ed Gein wow. is listening. <laughs> so, mm, what about that skin? <laughs> And again, they showed this video at trial to show the destructive nature of the wood chipper. But I think that's really smart because Mm -hmm. like I have not seen. Well, actually, I happened to see a wood chipper in operation today while I was driving to court, (laughs) which is just it's just so fortuitous. But I mean, like you wouldn't you'd think that there would be more evidence than just these tiny bone fragments. But I guess they were saying that 
really the only thing that was left on the lakeshore was like the heavier pieces that fell that Richard didn't account for. Like he thought that all of it would be sprayed into the oh. river, but that like some of these pieces fell beyond the point that he thought that they mm-hmm. or before the point that he thought that they would. Um, and then Dr. Lee testified as the cleanup hitter. He testified for three days touching base on all the major forensic evidence, which that would be exhausting mm-hmm. to be like on your game for, for three th- consecutive days for that many hours at a time. So the defense tried to cast a doubt in the case because they found that tiny, they found the fingernail and there was a tiny piece of flesh, flesh attached to it. Uh, that had a piece of fingerprint on it, a partial print. Oh. Yeah. I'm so. I cannot believe this. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't match it to Hella's. So they had an explanation for that. Now they did. There was nail polish on the fingernail, and they actually matched the nail polish to one of the bottles of Hella's nail polish that oh was in her home. God. But this they, is what I think of when I think of like forensic evidence. Like it is this crazy. Right matching and wow so they they couldn't match the fingerprint and they had an explanation for this so first of all the state police did not dust the crafts house for hella's fingerprints because why wouldn't her fingerprints be all over her own home and they didn't think that it would have any significance whatsoever but the piece of of flesh that had the partial print was from the edge of the fingernail and now they were saying that not all organizations roll fingers to produce prints they just take the flat fingerprint when they do it the fbi and interpol roll the fingers but not pan am now i think that's now standard practice to roll the fingerprints because i've had fingerprints taken for like background checks and the bar exam and like stuff like that and they definitely roll your fingerprints um but so pan the fingerprints they had for pan am they had not rolled them so the police having only those fingerprints couldn't match it from that side of her finger so they made a big deal about that saying you found this fingerprint you can't match it to her so they think the prosecution just failed to really drive home the fact of why they couldn't match it to her, her fingerprint and now although defendants are usually counseled against it richard crafts testified for a day and a half so he testified that hella had brought up divorce over the years it was usually a way for him to change his behavior Um, he said that she seemed set on the idea in the fall of 86 and he said that he thinks his cheating was a sore point for her maybe (laughs) maybe that was something that Uh, i am sensing that you did not like me cheating on you So he said, you know, the last day that he was explaining that, you know, she was seen by anyone else, he said it was really mundane. You know, he said the morning that she left, he said she left the morning of the 19th, which is the day that he brought them to his sister's house. She said, I'm leaving now and left. And he said that he thought that she went to the sister's house in Westport, um, the free, the large freezer that he used. No, he just bought that because he wanted to store large quantities of frozen foods because Hella was the treasurer of a co-op. The wood chipper? No, no. He just rented that to clear some brush on that Currituck property. Now, the fact that the wood chipper was designed for logs like one foot in diameter might have been a little bit of overkill for the brush. I think I mentioned that before. One but foot, you say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for the limbs. <laughs> So he also testified about his, he had three interviews with the police when it was all said and done. 
And he said he thought, you know, he knew that he had the right to remain silent. He had been read his Miranda rights, but he didn't think it was necessary to stay silent because he believed that Hella was alive. She was fine. That is a good argument for him to make, but wrong. Right. (laughs) Also, I don't care if you're guilty or innocent. When the police talk to you, you shut shut up. up. You shut up. shut up that's coming from a lawyer (laughs) not legal advice so so regarding the dark patch on the rug crafts again said he had two kerosene heaters when the electricity failed he'd placed one in the family room and one of the larger ones in the master bedroom while he was refilling it he'd uh allowed the kerosene to overflow and had left a spot on the carpet he'd knocked the cap off of the kerosene heater and that left a soot mark so he needed to get rid of the rugs isn't it interesting though that he had these kerosene heaters that he was putting throughout the house but he rushed the family out because it was cold and Mm -hmm. the power went out and there was no heat and then this is my favorite so remember the uh november 20th so two days after the last time she was seen he told the nanny hella called she's in denmark with her sick mother right when he was asked to explain this he said i met hella's danish friend hella meyendorf of course yeah that hella yeah so i was i was just talking about a completely different hella like it was completely different sounds like your kids giving reasons why they did something because (laughs) it wasn't me it was yeah (laughs) so crafts told the court i never raised a finger of anger i never raised a finger in anger at hella in my life I didn't use a chainsaw or a wood chipper in any way to dispose of her body. I believe she's alive. I certainly hope she is. I hope she's coming home soon. I believe it to be true. So the prosecutor got to question him as well, asked him about his time with Air America because that CIA training. Mm -hmm. And Richard said, I didn't work for the CIA. And if I did, I wasn't aware of it. It sounds like something a CIA person would <laughs> right, say. Right, right. <laughs> a man has no name. <laughs> Said he wasn't aware of it and had received no CIA training. So, casual. Uh-huh. And then he was asked uh, if he knew that there were any places closer by that may have had wood chippers <laughs> other than Darien, Connecticut. Um And he said that he wasn't looking for one uh, that had a large opening. He said he didn't have a discussion with the guy about whether his Toyota pickup truck could haul it. He said he didn't talk to the guy about holding the machine and paying him even though he didn't have possession of it. So basically, he just testified in complete contradiction to all of the testimony that had the jury had already heard from all the Mm -hmm. state's witnesses, which I mean is a tactic. That's what I'm saying. That is a that is a strategy it's a strategy i also loved this a lot so keith mayo the pi had testified for the prosecution on april 6th so the defense attorney subpoenaed him to appear later on now this was on april 25th which shows that the defense clearly underestimated the length of the state's case which i believe was nine weeks long Um, so a Connecticut subpoena is good for 60 days. And by the time that the defense attorney wanted to call the PI back, the subpoena had expired. (laughs) So the defense had neglected to serve another one. And without one, the PI refused to appear in court. (laughs) So the defense, the defense attorney sent a sheriff to serve the new subpoena, but the PI avoided service. And after several tries, the sheriff chased the P.I. at high speed into New York, where he threw the paper at his car, (laughs) 
which they said wasn't good enough. <laughs> so basically, the defense attorney wanted to call uh, the PI back to the stand, and he was trying to say that Keith Mayo framed Richard Crafts. He was trying to say mm-hmm. that he had the opportunity to frame him and plant evidence and reap the reward in publicity and cash, naturally. <laughs> And he said, you know, that the PI had access to the craft home and could have taken potential evidence, um, such as the self-addressed envelope that was located at River Road, which very interesting. They said that that envelope went through the wood chipper Hmm. and came out like pristine. Apparently it had like nicks on it, but it came out pristine. I cannot imagine there's circumstances where it would like perfectly go through the blades to yeah. not have any marks it on it. It's like vertically thin. It's very yeah. thin, I guess. I mean, it just like the, the stars had to align yeah. for that to happen. The state called a few rebuttal witnesses, including this Hella Meyendorf, who <laughs> said that she did not call the craft house on November 20th <laughs> and say that she was going to visit her sick mother. So this all in all, the state had called 86 witnesses, the defense called 33 witnesses, and the state had more than 650 exhibits, which really interesting. I just heard this this afternoon that the debate trial had over 100 witnesses and over 600 exhibits. So like the whole like husband wife murder apparently requires lots of exhibits and witnesses. (laughs) So they each got two hours each for closing argument. The state's attorney told the jury that Hella was dead. Why would she have left her children? Would she have told her mother to send her a pair of pants if she had intended to disappear? Would she have paid the divorce lawyer a $2,500 retainer? She wanted a divorce, not escape. Like, Mm -hmm. she's dead. Mm -hmm. She did not leave. The defense said that if Hella Crafts was a good mother, then Richard Crafts was a wonderful father. And especially in view of his shortened life expectancy from his cancer, would he orphan his children? Could a man be jailed on the basis of two thirds of an ounce of bone and five cubic centimeters of blood? So the jury deliberated for 17 days, which I believe was a record for the state at that time. Wow. There was one juror who refused to convict Mr. Warren Maskell. He had, this is a bizarre aside, but he had actually crashed into a utility pole on the way home from court. He ended up in the hospital with a fractured skull and two broken ribs. Oh, um, apparently he suffered from epilepsy and I think he had like a seizure while he was driving home. So the state said they were willing to proceed without him. So they must have had alternates. But the defense attorney wanted to wait before he consented to that. Another juror visiting this mascal in the hospital gave him a copy of this book, which he said he later regrets having done. It was a novel about a man who narrowly escapes conviction for a murder he has not committed. Who gives somebody a book like that? Well, he's a juror on a murder trial. That guy who regrets it later (laughs) on. (laughs) So I, I guess this other juror encouraged the guy to return following the july 4th break and the guy agrees and he comes back and now after that the relationship between this mr mascal and the rest of the jury began to deteriorate now they said that this juror mr mascal um actually violated the judge's orders apparently he was reading the newspapers which is against the rules Mm. 
and was discussing evidence with his wife, which is also against the rules. He believed Richard's craft's testimony and he took issue with the fingerprint that we talked about. So on a Friday, they, you know, they kept talking to him. They were going through the evidence. They were saying like, look at the totality of the circumstances. Like they were, you know, trying to show them his point. So on a Friday, he said, okay, you guys are right. I'm ready to vote for conviction. But another juror wanted the weekend to think about it again. And by Monday, Mr. Mascal had changed his mind again. Oh my gosh. So on July 16th, the jurors sought guidance from the judge and were given a Chip Smith instruction. That's the name of it in Connecticut. It's the judge gives them an instruction um, where the minority in the deadlock jury should examine the majority's opinion closely in order to try to reach a unanimous verdict. So Mm -hmm. when the jurors are like, we need help, we don't know what to do, they give this instruction. So the jurors went back in and they said, okay, who's willing to change their mind? Who's ready to change their mind? And they all said, well, none of us. (laughs) So one of the jurors was like, all right, well, let's order dinner. And Mr. Mascow was like, nope, and bounced. Just left the room. He refused to do that. Apparently. He refused to deliberate any longer, would not come back. The judge summoned the jury, but Mr. Mascow was gone. He just what? left. So the judge declared a mistrial I around see. 9 p.m. I was going to ask that. Oh, no. Now, the state's attorney um, said bad things about Mr. Mascal and said that he, you know, didn't do his civic duty and that he was a coward. Uh, and he got sued. And I believe yeah. he paid a settlement for that. Wow. So yeah, that was not a that. good idea. No. But so the state, bless their hearts, they did not give up. They said, okay. We got 11 people to believe us, like, we can do this, mm-hmm. and they retried him. Uh, the defense got the case moved to Norwalk, Stanford, because of all the prior publicity. Mm-hmm. And again, it was the defense's position that Crafts couldn't get a fair trial anywhere in the state. Um, and actually, Crafts had a new lawyer for the second case because the private defense lawyer said he was $65,000 in the hole, and he didn't want to defend him any longer. That's so fair. <laughs> he ended up with a public defender. And by 1989, which is when his second trial started, his children refused to talk to him or visit him. Even uh, they wouldn't talk to him even on the phone because they believed that he had killed their mother. Mm. Oh, poor kids. so his second trial commenced on September 7th, 1989. And the big surprise of this trial was that his brother-in-law, David Rogers, which is Kraft's sister, testified this time. And he said he made he made the comment that let them dive there's no body it can't be found so that was crucial and he also said to him that even if they discover the wood chipper it would prove to be a dead end um (laughs) (laughs) yeah so and when he asked why uh when he was asked why he didn't come forward during the first trial he said he feared revenge on his family Hmm. if uh richard was acquitted that's fair yeah so and he also probably could have said that he didn't want to become an accessory after the fact because richard had said these things to him and he didn't come to the police so the second trial the state had called 86 witnesses again although they weren't all the same ones jeez the state's case was eight weeks instead of nine the defense ended up calling 27 witnesses and the jury deliberated for four days and convicted him of murder on november 21st 1989 and then one of the jurors commented that it was based on a massive totality of the evidence. 
That is perfectly said because I can understand why you can't do it, especially without a full body, mm-hmm. you know, just on circumstantial. But it's like when you add everything you just told us and what they found and the testimony and all that, no question. And because the fact that it's three years later, too, and she still hasn't shown up. So oh, she mysteriously yeah. went away. Right, she, right. Nobody's heard from her, yeah. seen her anything in three years. So it's point. like if anybody was buying the argument that she just took off, it's way less plausible after right. three years. Right. Yep. So yep. it's like, what's the alternative? The Like yeah. like you're saying, she's not missing because she would have shown up eventually. And who else would have killed her? I mean, nobody else had the motive that he had or, you know, the witnesses tying him to it. I mean, like yep. the circumstantial evidence was damning. So he was sentenced to 50 years in prison. Um, and when he was brought to prison, the inmates chanted, chip, chip, chip. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. It's, it's brutal. It's hazing. <laughs> so he appealed the decision. In 1993, the Supreme Court affirmed his conviction in a four to one decision. So actually, <laughs> one of the judges felt that um, he should be entitled to a new trial because the jury should not have been permitted to hear the comments that Hella made to her friends prior to her murder. So they shouldn't have heard the fact that she said, if I go missing. Is that when they say hearsay? Is that what they're so they're saying it is, is hearsay they're saying that these statements were coming in and that the defendant didn't have a chance to cross-examine her well that's because he killed her yeah um so she wasn't there oh, to she was say things yeah she wasn't there to say things so the majority said that the jury instructions were fine that you know the comments that she made were fine that the jury had the right to hear the statements because it countered the defense's position that she simply disappeared and was still alive and they said too with the extensive publicity that he still got a fair trial because enough time had passed between his arrest and the first trial was 18 months later um, to reduce the overall prejudicial effect and then he also complained about the dramatic um headlines that the press made but they said that you know when they impaneled the jury people said that even if they had seen the news that they could be impartial Hmm. so you sort of have to take them on their word even if they're lying like you know they're under oath so they had to take them at their word so he actually um he's out he served a dramatically shorter sentence mostly because of an old sentencing law known as statutory good time that has since been changed but the law, the law allowed for large amounts of time to be taken off of a prisoner's sentence as a reward for good behavior and jailhouse jobs. And corrections has to apply the law that was in place at the time of sentencing. Mm. So this was 1990 that he was sentenced. So um, they know they if you're sentenced today, you no longer get credit for good time like that. But previously it was and i didn't write this down so i'm just going off of memory i think you got 12 days for every month that you serve with no issue and then you can add an additional five days um if you have a job so you can get 17 (laughs) days total off of your sentence for each month i think that that is correct i'm saying that i think it's correct grim fact (laughs) so he also got three years credit for the time that he served between his arrest and his sentencing um, and he only got two disciplinary infractions while he was in prison. Um, it was just considered medium level offenses, but it doesn't say what they were for. And then he was let out seven months early to transfer to a supervised program instead of being released to the streets after 32 years behind bars. And that made me think of um, the guy in Shawshank Redemption where he just like got let out in the street after being in jail yeah. his entire life and did yep. not know what to do with himself. Yep. So that's Great what movie. I was thinking of. So, yep, he he's out. 
Wow. He's just he's just out living his life. So he served 33 years of his 50 year sentence. Um, wow. Yeah. So um, his crimes have inspired some um, pop culture items so fargo the movie fargo is based on this and in oh. fact the end of the movie uh one of the characters is killed and their body is put through a wood chipper hmm. um if you're a fan of forensic files episode oh, yeah. one is the wood chipper murder um though it was actually called medical detectives when this episode <laughs> oh. aired which forensic files is like a much much better name yeah. much better name yeah. medical alliteration liking. i do not like medical detectives so that is the insane story of Richard Crafts and the infamous murder of his wife, Hella. Wow. That is insane. Uh, uh. Wood jibbers. You want me to say more? It's just insane. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's no real crazy. good word to yeah. summarize your feeling on that case other than, hey, Richard, if you're listening, what's up? Because oh. he's out. So. Yeah. He is out. Hey, he's, like, he's in his 80s, though. Like, so like, he is not probably one of the people having he, he's probably having issues with starting and we're stopping and restarting laura podcast, do the yeah. math he was born in 1937 to how old he is now yes 63 83 85 did you say 97 Colby? i just i just threw out a number because she didn't say words so i, I was, was just nothing <laughs> not that you're not drunk enough to do it very fast but you that's think, what we you need think about it now so it is sort of infuriating that he's out but he's that old okay so like he's gonna die in prison he, he doesn't serve any threat to society now he really was only a threat to his wife quite honestly True. well and again this is the point of putting a sentence on somebody and well i guess he didn't serve his full sentence but right that's the point of having a sentence and serving it and you're supposed to come out and you are, are you know it's in right you've served it i mean and they still have they still have laws in place now where you're eligible for parole after a certain right. amount of time so that pri just those older laws where they had statutory yeah. good time like when it was when he was out he was out there was no supervision and they sort of got rid of that and now yeah. they have the parole system in place but mm. was the name of it really statutory good time it is that just sounds i was thinking the same very thing. absurd yeah <laughs> that's why they got rid of it yeah statutory good time yep so if you are enjoying listening to Grimm, please rate and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss any episodes. So we're now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. Follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for information on future episodes and case photos, including the nibble belt if you listen to episode <laughs> three. If you want to send us a case suggestion or just say hi, you can email us at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We hope you enjoyed listening on this terrifically terrifying Terrible Tuesday, and we hope you learned something so that you can stay alive for episode four.